got my back every time. So we've been going through this, the book of Exodus. We're going to conclude this section on Exodus, which, which is the part where they actually exodus from Egypt. That's the exit today that we're going to look at. In the early church, the apostles, Jesus himself, saw their story in the context of Exodus. Uh, it wasn't like, oh, forget that part. Now we're on to a new chapter. No, they, they saw their story as a continuation of Exodus. And so we've been arguing that the Exodus was not just a spiritual reality, which is often applied in the New Testament times, but it was a political reality. It was a, a social uh, deliverance. It was an economic deliverance. And that whenever we as the church minimize the gospel to just one aspect, spiritualize it, or on the other extreme, politicize it, uh, it gets toxic. Things, things go wrong. And so we're, we've been talking about how important it is to integrate those things and how Exodus does those things for us. Now, I'm a grandpa. Did I, did I tell you guys that? Yeah, you know that, right? And uh, one thing I've noticed about uh, my grandkids, especially the younger ones, is they love stories. In fact, if we have a sleepover or a play date, often stories are what makes up most of our time together. And my, our latest sleepover we had was with Alina. She came over and and uh, it, it, our whole time almost uh, completely consisted of, of s stories. And she's five now. And um, she, when she was younger, she just took whatever stories came her way. I'd just pull out a book and tell her a story. But what I've noticed lately is she's more and more wanting to pick the story. And she has about two that we tell over and over and over again. One is Beauty and the Beast, and the other one is Ariel, the Little Mermaid. And we, uh, she'll still accept another story. You know, I try to slip in a new one here and there, but for my own entertainment. And but she'll she'll just say, well, let's go. Can you tell me? And it's and and we'll like if Beauty and the Beast. We got to book this thick. It takes about an hour. To go through it, I'm serious. And then she'll go, can we do that again? Like, oh, sure, honey, next time. No, 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 now. So there's something about this story that just deeply resonates with her and connects. And, and I feel it myself. There's some powerful themes that come through these stories. And I also noticed, by the way, on this, this play date and sleepover, that she, she came along with me to do some errands. And so when it came to putting gas in the car, she wanted to hold the pump and squeeze the trigger. And uh, I'm not even sure if that's child safe. Uh, and and uh, uh, she wanted to you know, push the button that opens the car lock for my, it, it, and it was interesting how she was not just content to be told the story. She wants to be in the story. And that's pretty much what we're sensing in this, in our text today as we go into Exodus. It's the essence of the text that we're talking about today is there's this strange dual thing happening. On one hand, you have a story that's happening. They're, they're exiting from Egypt with all the drama around it. But the narrative goes at the same time as saying, and this is how you are to remember. And so there's, there's all these instructions for how to 
how to stay in the story, how to continue to be in the story, not only in their generation, but generations to come, that it's their story too. And there's very careful instructions through uh, Exodus 12 and 13 to the end of the chapter where, where Yahweh, the God of Israel, is so concerned that uh, this story is not lost. And it's all about learning to stay in your own story. Parker Palmer says that it is possible to live a life that's not your own. How many know what I'm talking about? I can think of seasons of my life where I wasn't living my own life. I was living somebody else's life or somebody else's idea of what my life should be. And this aspect of staying in the story is critical to living our own life and being who we are. And God was concerned that they even though they'd been delivered from Egypt, that they would be sucked back into the, the wrong narrative, the wrong story. They were in a wrong story in Egypt. It wasn't their story. And like Alina, my granddaughter, Israel hadn't had much control over their story at the beginning. Like all of us, we inherit a story. We are born into a story. We grow up into a story. So a lot of the stories we get at the beginning are are out of our control. So they inherited exile and slavery in Egypt. And they grew up a generation of slaves. But now God was intervening and he was rescuing them from this sense of being out of control, from this sense that they had no power over their story. And he was bringing them to a place where they now could choose their own story. They could choose what story, what narrative they were going to be in from here on. And so he gave them instructions how to stay in that story so they wouldn't get sucked back into slavery. Because you remember what we talked about a few weeks ago. Pharaoh wasn't on the throne of Egypt. Pharaoh was here. And for 40 years, they had to get rid of the Pharaoh inside. That unbelief, that need to control, that sense of understanding power as a, as a way to to be served rather than to serve. And not understanding the true power, the power of God, which, which came to, not to be served, but to serve. And so we will find in the coming days that getting out of Egypt was the easy part. The hard part was getting Egypt out of them. And so this whole aspect of, of uh, remembering the story is all part of living our true lives. So our, our story so far, as we get ready to go into our text today, is that you'll remember God had instructed Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron to free Israel from their oppression and slavery. And when Pharaoh resists, God makes it very hard for him. And uh, as, as I said in the bulletin, we change when the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same, right? It's story of my life, right? And so this so happened with Pharaoh. The pressure goes on. These plagues begin to attack Egypt in the form of many of them attacking their gods, their value system, uh, their idolatry. 
until they come to the worst plague that Joanna discussed last week, the plague of, of, the, of the death of Egypt's firstborn. Whereas the firstborn of Israel are protected by God because of their obedience to take the blood of a lamb and paint it on the doorposts of their house. And all of Egypt sees the separation, and when they do, they along with Pharaoh relent, and they tell them, please go. And so we come to this text during the night, the same night of the Passover. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and Israelites, go and worship. And remember that word worship? We talked about that a few weeks ago. What's the significance of that word worship? It's the same word as Pharaoh was demanding of Israel for him. Serve. Allegiance. You're all mine. So when God announced to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me, he was saying to them, they're my slaves, not yours. Let them go. They're mine. So there was this contest of who they would serve going on. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go. Oh, and, and also bless me. What a guy. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry to leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. Now, I don't know how many times I've read this story, but I saw something this time I've never seen before. How many ever experienced that where God sneaks something in that wasn't there before? So keep an eye on that. The dough, I thought that they brought unleavened bread because God had commanded it. But actually, God commanded it for the commemoration of the Passover. But that's not what happened here. Let's follow along. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they'd asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians said, come on, take whatever you want. What was happening there? It's called hundreds of years of sweat wages. Right? Justice. Year of Jubilee. That's what's going on. But there's something more going on there. That all of these... Does anybody remember what all these, the, the, these articles of silver and gold and clothing were used for when they got into the wilderness? Does anybody remember? There was a great big offering taken, right? Yeah? And who got a hold of it? The artists. And they began to create beauty out of all the gold and the silver, and they made the tabernacle and the furnishings of the temple. And Ray Baki says the, that one of the greatest things the poor need is beauty because their lives are so full of ugliness. And so what God was giving them back was the gift of beauty and creativity that had nothing to do with utilitarian because up to that point, they were nothing but machines, human machines serving the empire of Egypt. But now God was restoring their humanity and their, their image of God. Oh, I could spend a lot of time on that, but I'll let Sandra talk about that more. 
The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, and there was about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children, which means about 2 million people, about the size of the lower mainland, maybe just a little bit smaller. Can you imagine that many people traveling together? Now, here's the irony. Everybody thinks it was quick. It was a hurry. This is fast. This is haste. How do you haste with 2 million people that include infants and toddlers and people in walkers and wheelchairs and people of all generations. Have you ever been on a road trip with kids when you were in a hurry? You know, you stop, I, Daddy, I have to go to the bathroom. So you stop, Daddy, I'm thirsty. So you give them a drink. Half an hour later, they have to pee it out again. Like, how do you... This is what Moses was experiencing. This was the pace of deliverance. This was the pace of liberation. This was the root of liberation. This is where they came from in Goshen. They came, they, scholars believe it was somewhere, it was actually a sea of reeds, not the Red Sea, but a sea of reeds, a lake full of reeds that they crossed. Now, where they were going was over here. And they made a beeline. How many know they didn't go as a crow fly? They did a beeline. You say, Gordy, that's not a beeline. You know that word beeline is a misnomer? Have you ever watched bees? You always think of a beeline. Make a beeline. We kind of have this idea. Like that. Have you ever watched bees? They don't do that. They go. Beeline. Right, Stephanie? So God gave them the beeline. Now what's going on there? There's a bus route in Vancouver that called the beeline too, isn't it? So the point is, is that God's pace was wheelchair accessible. God's route was wheelchair accessible. And of course, it wasn't just about the destination. It was about the journey and about their relationship with him. And we'll be learning about that in the next segment of it, of course. The stories in the wilderness. And then with the dough, the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. Here is why the Feast of Unleavened Bread was commemorated. I've heard all of these explanations about yeast is sin and you got to get it rid of sin. And one problem, they ate yeast the rest of the year. They, eat, they ate yeast year round. So it was just during this festival, these seven days that they didn't have yeast. So what's going on? Well, the writer explains the dough was without yeast because they'd been driven out of Egypt and didn't have time to prepare the food for themselves. So God wanted them to remember. When it was time to go, it was time to go. You don't mess around. Just go. It was a time thing. Now, I'm not saying, even Paul uses leaven as a picture of sin, but Jesus uses leaven as a, as a good picture, doesn't he? About the woman who put yeast, and that's what the kingdom is like. So there's this mix of, of other applications of leaven. So I'm not saying those applications don't apply. But related to the Passover story in the Exodus, it, it was a time thing. It was a timing thing. Don't have time to leaven your bread. So what they did is, and some of us, you know, they had, it's like a potluck. When you're, when you're doing a meal train or you're taking a meal on, on the go, matzah on the go, we call it, right? They, they could not 
prepared in time. So they put the bread, they put the dough in a bowl, and they covered it with their clothing, it says. Because they didn't have time to prepare the food. Now, the length of time that the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. And uh, I think Joanna did a good job last week explaining that probably goes right back to the time of Abraham, about 430 years. Probably because they've been in exile. They've been sojourning. And they did go under Abraham to Egypt several times. And, and, but they were exiles. That's kind of more the point Wandering around. And now look at the wording of verse 42. This is so fascinating. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt on this night. All the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Isn't that beautiful? Because the Lord watched over them, all of Israel's to keep watch and wait on the Lord on this night at this time. Stay in the story. Keep the story going. So what's that about? Well, God is, gave them practices for staying in their story. They were to be a people of memory. My dad, our dad, gave us a beautiful gift a few weeks ago when he wrote a beautiful biography of my grandpa. And as I read that, grand, that biography of my grandfather, I read stories that I'd never heard before. That I go, wow, this shapes who I am. This shapes where we've come from. I think one of the greatest gifts to Canada has been the Marie Sinclair and Marie um, Wilson and Chief Littlechild as they took thousands of residential school stories that were told all across this land with tears. And they they integrated them into this beautiful narrative that's now our story. We're all, we've all eaten, eaten those bitter herbs together. What a gift that we can share this common story. At least it's an invitation to, for us to have this common story. So practices that God gives for staying in the story. The first year, first practice was um, the new year. Um, the Passover was to be the beginning of the Jewish new year, although ironically they had two new years that, that they traditionally have in their history. And it's almost like the choice of new year they, ha they have is what story they will choose. And there's two new years they have. One was was at the Passover, which was usually around spring. It was in the uh, month of uh, Aviv. I think that's how you say it. And Aviv means first fruits, the first grain of the barley. <clears throat> so here's the thing. It's not like a solar calendar. The, 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 month, the, the Jewish uh, Passover month was a bit of a floating date, depending on two things. The lunar calendar, they would wait for the full moon, and then a new moon. And when the new moon hit, they'd blow a trumpet, because the word month comes from moon, right? They'd blow a trumpet to declare the new year. They would count 10 days, <clears throat> and then the Passover. 
would start, the Passover celebration. <clears throat> but there was another thing that was important. They also had to keep an eye not only on the sky, but on the earth. And they had to wait for the, the, the crops to begin to, to ripen. And when the first grain was ready to be harvested. So it was, it was a timing thing. It had to be at, at a time of a new moon, but it also had to be a time when the harvest was ripening. So rather than the new year beginning with sowing, which was the other choice they had, which was in September. In the Israeli calendar, the, the time of sowing was in September. And today, most contemporary Jews regard their new year in September. But it's like God gave them an alternative. He said, you can have an alternative new year, an alternative narrative if, if you'd like. And that is, you can start with abundance. You can start with provision. You can start with a harvest already ripe, rather than starting with work and effort and toil and labor. It's like a beginning with a point of provision and abundance. And it's kind of like the Jewish day. The Jewish day actually begins at, at night. And the first thing God says is, have a sleep. And while you're sleeping, I'll work. And then when you wake up in the morning, you can join me in my work. It's kind of that same idea. So you're working from abundance rather than poverty and from, from lap. So this is where the calendar becomes a tool of practices. And the church and the Old Testament church, the New Testament church, has used the calendar to tell the story, to stay in the story. That's why we celebrate Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter. We, we use these as tools with our children to tell the story as the Jewish people did. The Passover, the Jews had about seven major festivals by which they would tell the story. And the, for the Passover, when they would celebrate the Passover, they would take a lamb, and of course, it wasn't long after the Jews had moved on that they no longer celebrated the Passover in their own homes as ter in terms of slaughtering the lamb and the doorpost. It all happened at the tabernacle or at the temple. And then they would take the lamb home and eat it together, the Seder, the Passover Seder. But they, the children would ask these questions. They would say, what does this ceremony mean to you? They were kind of cued and prompted to, to ask uh, why do we eat only unleavened bread? Well, son, well, daughter, it's because when it was time to go, we didn't have time to, to put yeast in our bread. On all other nights, we eat all kinds of vegetables. Tonight, we only eat bitter herbs. Why? Well, it's to remember that pain and lament is part of our story. That God doesn't kind of, uh, you know, Kip, Pat and I were talking about this yesterday. We, we were kind of raised in an environment where you didn't grieve. You weren't allowed to grieve too much because it was a, a lack of faith. But God says, let lament be part of your story. The bitter herbs is part of your story. And I'm working in that. So intergenerational discipleship and learning. And of course, the lesson of the Passover is that it always begins and ends in mercy. It was God's initiative. Any practice we do is founded in the fact that God has first been merciful to us. We, I, every morning I pray this prayer, Lord, thank you that you first knew me. You first loved me before I ever knew you. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you and loving you. But thank you more that you first knew me 
Before I was even born, you called me by name. Think about that. Before you were even born, he called you by name. That's what the Passover tells us. That we have this God who is tenacious, tenaciously pursuing us and rescuing us. And then the, the, the parable of the, or the uh, festival of unleavened bread. On the 10th day, they would start the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They would clean all the yeast out of their house. They would kill the, cast, the, the uh, or they would take the lamb into the household. Um, and, and of course, there was these four days where the lamb stayed with them, and the kids fall in love with the lamb, and they've given him a name. But then it says that they were to kill the lamb after twilight, or at twilight. I think that was after bedtime. What do you think? I hope so. Yeah. But why did God do that? You know, Joanna talked about that last week. Why did he do that? Why did he allow the family to fall in love with this little animal? As heart, rip your heart out. But I think, I think part of it was God's concern that we go to our head with our faith and we lose the heart about what this is all about. I, I mean, I can't unpack that all today. We don't have time. But I think we, especially in the West, we're so, we're so cerebral in our faith. We do things, we go through rituals, and, as, and we get in the problem the Pharisees had. Our, we honor with our lips, but our heart is far from God. So he, he gave these practices to help them not lose the heart. That this is a, a journey of, of, the, of the torn heart over and over again. Right? So how does matzah or unleavened bread fit into the story? Well, it's bread to go. It was a feast that lasted seven days. On the first day, they cleansed the house, and then they, they would be without this leaven for seven days, and something radical happens on the first day to these group of slaves. What does God say? First time in their history. First time. He says, take a day off. Stop your working. For the first time. In hundreds of years. How radical is that? God said, stop all work. And then, two times at least, maybe the whole week. I, I did all kinds of reading. I can't figure out if it's a whole week of, off or the first day and the last day. I've, I've heard both. But either way, two days? At the, at the worst case scenario, two days? In one week? No wonder Pharaoh called them a bunch of lazy bums. Didn't he? He said, they're just lazy. I know what their Yahweh is like. They do nothing all day long. But God said, stop all work because you're not human doings. You're human beings who stop like God does. God stops. And if you're in the image of God, you know how to stop. Not when you're finished. But you stop when it's time to stop. The first thing their new boss gives them, remember they changed bosses from Pharaoh to Yahweh, the first thing their boss gives them is two days off. 
No working except one thing. Oh, yeah, one thing you need to do. See that big slab of steak over there? Lift that up and put it on the barbie. And then, from then on, every seven days, same thing. Forever. And sometimes in the year, more than seven days. Man, they, these Jews had lots of time off. Lazy bums. How useless. How radical was it, as Eugene Peterson says, that for a people who hadn't a day, had a day off in 100 years, hundreds of years, they had no weekend, no coffee breaks, morning to dusk. They were machines who performed and achieved and had output, who compared themselves by their, their output, that this had become their identity. Not persons in the image of God, but slaves, work units, equipment. Humanity was defaced. Now God says, stop, because you're valuable for who you are without doing one thing. It reminds me, and this has been a tender week for me, because um, every, every year, November the 22nd, when I do my journal, just something really deep happens in me. You know why? Because 28 years ago, me and my little family got on a plane. And we flew over to England. And when we got off the plane, we arrived in this house that this little church had worked on for weeks, putting in insulation and a new heating system. And there was a pot of boiling stew on the stove. And the walls cried out, you are loved. And they said, and, and I'd asked this group of people, I said, I want a job. Can I, can I be a pastor? Can I visit the sick? Can I? And they said, how do you feel if you just came and you did nothing? And you just be. I said, that's what I mean. Be a pastor. Be. No, 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 no. Just be. And it was during that time that I went through detox. Because my identity had been in what I did in my position and in my title. And for the, the next year, I was Gordy. I wasn't pastor. I wasn't evangelist. I wasn't traveling preacher. I wasn't associate. I was Gordy. I was a brother. And I went through detox, literally detoxed during that time. In the monasteries, they, it, it, the Benedictine monasteries, they have these bells that ring just like ours. And the bells say, stop working, time to pray. Stop working, time to eat. And they follow, they follow that. And so I think the haste part, the haste part is not going faster. The haste part is you stop. You slow down. Now, and I'm, I, I have to be honest with you, my brokenness, in spite of my exodus to e from Egypt, which was Calgary at the time, to go to the promised land in England for my deliverance from my own pharaohs, I still, those driven things are so deep and I still find it hard to stop. And unless I'm finished. Sermons, preparing and delivering them, they're hard for me to stop. Because <laughs> they never feel complete. Right? So I'm going to get Dave to start ringing the bell. <laughs> Dave would love that. Get your big Santa Claus smile back there. Awesome. So Robert uh, Mueller, one of the, Wayne Mueller just writes a classic on Sabbath. He says, Sabbath is not dependent on our readiness to stop. 
We do not stop when we're finished. We do not stop when we complete our phone calls, finish our project, get through this stack of messages, or get out this report that is due tomorrow. We stop because it's time to. So get rid of the leaven. So the leaven for me is cell phones. I get rid of my, on my Sabbath, I don't only put it on do not disturb, I turn off notifications because I'm, I'm so addicted that I can get a notification and I'm hooked. You say, well, Gordy, that's irresponsible. So like we didn't live for 10,000 years without that, right? We're being lied to by the pharaohs of our culture and so we don't know how to slow down. We don't know how to stop. What is your leaven? What stops you from stopping? What stops you from slowing down? That's the leaven. So lastly, the redemption of the firstborn, and I'm out of town, time. I was going to say I'm out of town. Some of you wish. Uh, I'm out of time. Time. So I'll just say the redemption of the firstborn, of course, that was a sacrifice that God asked Israel to make of their firstborn children and animals. And, and in place of the child being sacrificed, they would offer a sheep. And it was, it was a reminder to them that the firstborn, that they were God's firstborn, that, that God had delivered, but then that the firstborn of Egypt had been slaughtered by the destroyer which I don't think was God, by the way. You look at the language carefully. It's like God's moving along and he says, oh, there's blood there. You can't touch that. That word destroyer is corrupter. So I, I think there was something about Egypt reaping the results of their corruption and their injustice that, that reaped judgment. And so God was working still in the midst of that. But when he saw the blood, he said, you can't touch. So it was a reminder that the firstborn were saved by the blood of the lamb. But it's, it's also when the firstborn is symbolic of blessing and abundance and increase and provision. And, and it's like you're receiving it with an open hand and you're saying, God, there's more where that came from. And I open my hand. That's the posture of this new kingdom, the kingdom of Yahweh. Pharaoh's posture is this, a clenched fist, right? And he said, it'll be like a tattoo or a red dot on your forehead. Well, it doesn't say that, but it's Kind of like that. It's a reminder. So the calendar, use it as a teaching tool. Implement ritual. I find if you don't set a regular time. I remember Greg Trainer, one of the best friendships I've ever had in my life. The Aussie guy was part of our church. We'd always say to each other, yeah, let's get together. We need to have a beer. Let's have a coffee. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and Greg, and as Canadians, we do that. Yeah, we should get together sometime. Yeah, yeah. Greg said, well, let's get together this Thursday at the barn at UBC. He was a region student. And I went, oop, okay. And then he, then he said to me, let's get together every week, same time. <laughs> Man, it just went against my grain. And I'm not saying, obviously, that has to be a mutually agreed commitment, but it changed my life, ritual. It's like my grandkids, they moved away, they were next door, they moved over here, they got a great little place. But I found if we don't have ritual, you can just, within weeks, lose track. You, you just go diff different ways. Ritual is, is, if it's from the heart, it has to be from the heart. So breaking bread, coming together like this with our kids, we tell the story, we stay in the right story. Stop when it's time to stop. 
the posture of an open hand receiving in generosity. So I want, to sh- I want to share, this is one of my favorite pieces of literature. I think it's the best Scrooge that ever was done. This is an example of changing your story of this miserly guy who is just hated by everybody because he's so stingy, he's so miserly, but he decides, well, he's kind of convinced like Pharaoh was, but he, he decides to change his story. Here's the power of a new story. Hit it. Neat. Eh? Alistair Sim, amazing. So what a, what a wonderful example of a man who was living a false narrative and discovered his true story. And uh, most of us, it's not that dramatic, but I think in many, day, many ways that is, that is um, lived by us, or the opportunity is given to us every day. God says what story you will choose. And the whole writings of the New Testament are... What story will you choose? Uh, Put away the false narrative. Put away that anger. Or put away that uh, anxiety. Be not anxious about anything. But pray about everything. So just those uh, options. And so these exercises in in re, uh, remembering the story. God has given us practices which when done with a worship, worshiping heart are means of grace that empower us to remember who we are, stay in our true story, and resist the gods that would enslave us with a false story and a false identity. So Lord, we ask you to keep us in the story Lord, we wouldn't be in the story if it wasn't for your initiative of grace, if it wasn't for your initiative of love. And we know those haven't stopped. They're ongoing. And that you've given us these wonderful, gracious practices of breaking bread together, of gathering together to worship, of of Sabbath to remember who we are. Grant each of us our exodus, Lord. Teach us how to be your beloved son, your beloved daughter, your children, infinitely delighted over and in by our Father. Thank you, Lord. So um, there's some reflection questions that you can look at in your your bulletin, but maybe if the Lord has just put his finger on things that are making it hard for you to stop, 
Get some prayer. Be, be happy to pray for you. I might turn and ask you to pray for me. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, with work, the adrenaline just gets going. And, and, and there is an adrenaline kick. There's an addiction to, to dotting the I and crossing the T and having it finished, right? There's an... There's a, I, I get... Okay, I, I have problems, okay? 